The Old Testament lesson is from the book of Genesis, the 12th chapter. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all of their possessions that they had gathered, and all the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so Abram built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on still going toward the Nagab. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle lesson is from Paul's letter to the Romans, the fourth chapter. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The Holy Gospel is taken from the Gospel of St. John, the third chapter. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, grace to you in peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for this evening's message is from the Gospel of St. John, the third chapter. I'm going to read to you verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is our text. Please be seated. In the name of Jesus Christ, the king snake, dear believers in him. When you hear the word snake, what images come to mind? Do you picture in your mind a cute, cuddly pet that you'd like to have slithering around in your house? Or does the image of a 14-foot boa constrictor maybe come to your mind that's coiled around a helpless animal squeezing the life out of its victim? Or when you hear the word snake, maybe you picture in your mind a venomous diamondback rattler poised to strike a deadly blow on its unsuspecting victim. When I hear the word snake, I often have the image come to mind from the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. I can tell some of you have watched that movie. Because in this movie, 
Indiana Jones is entombed in a snake pit with his girlfriend. And cobras cover the floor and asps slither out of the holes in the wall. And poisonous snakes are everywhere. I shudder just thinking about the scene. It's right up there with bats for me. Another image that comes to my mind when I hear the word snake, and I'm sure it comes to your mind too, is the serpent, which appears to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In this story, Satan slyly approaches Adam and Eve in the form of a snake, and he sinks his fangs of temptation into them and poisons them against their creator. And consequently, God pronounces his judgment upon his disobedient creatures. It's no wonder that snakes have been the source of fear and anxiety for many people and the object of many people's intense dislike. And yet, not all images of snake need send shivers up and down our spine I mean, there are positive images of snakes as well. In fact, there's a snake that everyone needs. And what or who is that snake? Well, it's Jesus, who I call the king snake. In the Old Testament book of Numbers, we read an interesting story about God's people and snakes. God's people are moaning and they're groaning about the circumstances of their life in the wilderness. And they're speaking against God and they're speaking against his servant Moses. And they're grumbling, saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt? Did you just bring us out here so that we might die? I mean, there's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Well, God has heard enough sniveling and grousing from these ungrateful people, ungrateful people that he had saved from slavery and who he provided for each and every day. And so to chastise these grumblers, we're told that the Lord sent venomous snakes among the people. And the snakes bit the people and many people died. Well, it appears that the snakes deliver God's intended message. They were very effective preachers, so to speak. Because we're told that the Israelites rushed to Moses and they confess, we have sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prays. He prays to the Lord on behalf of these undeserving complainers. And the Lord responds with grace, forgiveness. We read in, in the Bible, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And so Moses, he made a bronze snake and he put it on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake, all they had to do was look at that bronze snake and he lived. In this snake story that I just told you from the book of Numbers, we learn at least three important truths about God. 
First, God will allow and even bring certain struggles upon us in order to chastise us, in order to help us to see our sin, so that we'll call upon Him for mercy and grace. Second, we see that God in His grace and compassion will grant healing to all of those who look to Him. I mean, there is no intrinsic healing capability within that bronze snake. But God had said to the people of Israel through the prophet Moses, if you look to that snake, I will heal you. That was his promise to them. And he fulfilled that promise when the people looked at the bronze snake. And then third, that bronze snake is a prelude to the reality that would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the snake. He's the king snake. Lifted high up on a cross so that all who would look to him would be saved. That's what Jesus said in our gospel reading for tonight, isn't it? He said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Several years ago, My family and I were visiting an animal conservatory in Naples, Florida. And while we were there, one of the guides reached into a container and lifted out a king snake. I'd never seen a king snake before. I didn't know anything about a king snake. But the king snake, it's a lovable, it's a lovable, slithery critter, especially when its tongue is darting in and out at you. And if I remember correctly, my kids were brave enough to try to touch that king snake while I kept my safe distance, of course. But you know, I learned some interesting things about the king snake from that guide that day. And my pastor years were always like, oh, there's some good sermon illustrations in this that I'll use someday. And so here they are. Do you know what I learned about king snakes on that day? Do you know why it's called a king snake? Because the king snake preys on all the other snakes. It's the king of snakes. Secondly, I learned that the king snake is immune to poisonous snake venom. And therefore does not hesitate to attack or squeeze and kill even rattlesnakes. And the third thing I learned is, is this. As deadly as the king snake is to other snakes, the king snake is harmless people. Consequently, the king snake is a most practical household pet because this lovable slithery snake will protect the household from any other kind of venomous snakes that you might have laying around in your house. And I would guess it would also eat some mice as well. But do you see some of the parallels between Jesus and the king snake? And why it is that I call Jesus the king snake? You see, like the king snake, Jesus preys on the serpent. In Genesis chapter 3.15, we have this first gospel promise, and we talk about it a lot because it's the most probably critical promise that God makes in all of Scripture. Because it sets out for us all that the Bible's about. 
And the promise in Genesis 3.15 is the word that God speaks to the serpent. And he says that one of the descendants of Adam and Eve will come and crush the serpent's head. And ever since God issued that promise to the serpent in the hearing of Adam and Eve, God has unrelentingly attacked and preyed on the serpent. That's why God's son came into this world to be our savior, was to attack and to crush the serpent who is Satan. I find it interesting that when Jesus was led out into the wilderness by Satan, he was tempted three times. And in one of those temptations, you may recall that Satan quotes from the Psalms. He quotes from Psalm 91, which tells how, you know, the, the Messiah can jump from a high place and fall to the ground and nothing will happen because the angels will come and swoop down and save the Messiah from, you know, dashing his head against the, the rocks or something like that. And so Satan says, jump and you'll see the angels swoop down and they'll rescue if you are truly the Savior of the world, the Son of God. That's the quote, misquote, that Satan pulls on Jesus. But what I find interesting about that is that in that very same chapter, it says of the Messiah, who is Jesus, it says of him that you will tread upon the cobra and you will trample the serpent. Isn't it interesting that Satan tries to take a text that actually speaks of his defeat and of his crushing defeat. And he tries to take it and use it to get Jesus to fall into temptation. But Jesus did not give in to that temptation, did he? Instead, he did what his father sent him to do, and he came and he crushed the head of that cobra. He trampled that serpent when he died on the cross. That's what 1 John 3.8 says. The reason the Son of God appeared was to trample upon and crush and destroy the serpent's work. And so Jesus is like the king snake in that he preys on the serpent. But Jesus, the king snake, is also immune to the serpent's poisonous bite and he actually squeezes the life out of the serpent. I mean, this fact is foreshadowed in an incident that occurred in Egypt in Exodus chapter 7. Maybe some of you have read it. In Exodus chapter 7, we read of Aaron, you know, Moses' brother. And Aaron's got this staff. And God tells Aaron, throw the staff on the ground. And when you throw that staff on the ground, it will be what? Transformed into a snake. And so that's what Aaron does. He throws that, that staff down. It tr is transformed into a snake. And then Pharaoh gets his magicians who are in his court to do the exact same thing. And with their powers, they actually are able to do that. They too throw their staff down on the ground, and it too turns into a snake. But here's the interesting thing. Aaron's staff turned into a snake swallows all their snakes showing to Pharaoh and showing to the people of Israel and showing to you and me that our God is more powerful than anything 
that the devil or death can ever conjure up. Yes, as foretold in Genesis 3.15, Jesus endures Satan's poisonous attacks. The serpent sinks its fangs into Jesus' side and he dies. But this is all part of the king snake's plan to crush the head of the serpent. Speaking of his death, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now the prince of this world, the serpent of this world, will be driven out. And indeed, with Jesus' death on the cross, the great dragon, we're told in the book of Revelation, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil or Satan. And so, yes, Jesus crushed. He crushed the head of Satan when he died. But Jesus did not remain dead, did he? Jesus, after his death, descended to hell. Not to suffer, but to proclaim to the serpent that indeed he had been crushed and defeated. And then Jesus rose from the dead, revealing to you and to me that he had swallowed up our greatest enemy. As St. Paul says, Death is swallowed up in victory. The king snake swallowed death up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, for he gives us the victory through the king snake, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the king snake has defeated and crushed the head of the serpent once and for all. And what's truly amazing is that Jesus, the king snake, is harmless to us. In fact, those households in which Jesus, the king snake, dwells have his protection. We have his protection. And we're protected. We're protected from Satan. Now, this is important for us to note because, you see, we've all been snake bit. We've been snake bit with sin. We've been snake bit with our sinful flesh. We've been snake bit with the poison of a worldly philosophy that vilifies the king snake and tries to draw us away from him. We've been snake bit by Satan who accuses us daily of the sins that we commit. And we've been snake bit with the curse of death. And because we have been snake bitten, we may recoil in, in apprehension and fear at the thought of God's judgment and his condemnation, but we need not fear. We need not fear God's judgment and condemnation because Jesus, the king snake, has freed us from God's condemnation for our sin. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. No. But to save the world through him. The king snake did not come into this world to 
damn us to hell. No. The king snake came to crush the head of the serpent and overcome death so that we might have eternal life. You know the words as well as I do. Say them with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. We have everlasting life. You know, snakes are not the most endearing creatures on earth. And snakes may not be our first choice as a house pet. They're certainly not mine. But there is one snake that every single one of us needs. The king snake. Jesus Christ. Amen. And now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.